Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Phased reopening of schools from March 1st. And how will new mandatory quarantine measures be enforced? Minister for Environment and Transport Eamon Ryan joins us. And what could an Ulster Bank exit from Ireland mean for staff and consumers? We'll have the very latest. Plus, later in the programme, we'll be hearing from an Irish expert in Ethiopia on variants vaccine inequality and fears that Africa will be left behind. And following Irish football star James McLean's stark revelations of online abuse, has the treatment of public figures online spiralled out of control? And is it time to clamp down on big tech as Facebook faces backlash over an Australian news ban? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Our first guest this evening is the Minister for Environment and Transport and leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan. Thank you for joining us because I know you've come directly from a lengthy meeting with Enfit tonight. What's its position on your plan to reopen the schools? Supportive. I think recognition that the health of our children um, needs them to be back in schools, that that there's a a real loss if they're missing out on their education. In, I mean, and there's a certain amount we can do online and so on, and we've done a very good job on that. But they need to be back in school, and it'll be done on a phased basis, and we'll have to be careful. We'll have to be careful. We'll do it on a phased basis for a variety of reasons. Firstly, with that amount of movement, the, we, we don't want much movement in society still. We still have high numbers. There's 900 or so cases today. So, um, and with this new variant, it is more transmissible. So primary schools start coming back and leaving certain students. To monitor and measure that, make sure it doesn't see a spike in numbers and, uh, and that we can manage it properly, which I'm absolutely certain we will be able to. Our schools have been very safe and have done this very well. Uh, and then further reopening of the schools on a phased basis. Uh, and that for mental health and for a whole range of health reasons. Um, and particularly, I suppose, for the Leaving Cert students now that they have clarity that, yeah, let's get down and let's get the Leaving Cert done. Well, given you mentioned over 900 new cases today, about half in Dublin, is there an argument for regional reopening of the schools, depending on how the cases are in particular counties? That hasn't, that hasn't been considered, and I don't think it will. Uh, Why not? Because I think... Um, because I think the situation actually is still ser- serious enough that, that, that we don't, uh, there isn't anywhere where you'd be saying, oh, well, we can open up here now. I think there is a cautious approach being taken. I think that's the correct way. Um, and I think uh, the message right across the country is the same. It's still within our 5K. It's still reducing context. It's still stay at home. For how much longer? Because I think a lot of people felt recently, OK, we're going to miss this early March deadline. Maybe Easter will be the deadline. Are we now talking about maybe past the May bank holiday weekend before we start having any real opening up of society and the economy again? I don't think we, I don't think we can speculate at that, or if I was speculating, it wouldn't necessarily help. 
in the coming weeks, we're still going to stick to what we've been doing well. I mean, it has been working. We've actually shown real resilience and real capability in getting the numbers down, but they still need to go further. And I suppose particularly that the R number, the reproduction rate number, doesn't creep back up. That's the real test that we have to manage. And I think the Irish people, you know, it's as tough as it is. We've, we've lost 1,000 people in recent months. And we don't want to put our health system back into the same pressure it was in a month ago. So I think, I think the Irish people understand that it's still, for the next number of weeks, a time to stay home, reduce contacts, reduce the risk of So how will you persuade the teachers that they should go back into classrooms? Well, I think, they, in fairness, they, they've been supportive of the, of the return to school. Um, and I think that they, we know that what we saw in the previous, uh, uh, in the, when schools were open, that actually the transmission rate was very low, that we were able to manage... That was distance. before the variant, the English variant, wasn't it? It was, but but uh, the, it was actually lower than other sections of uh, society. And that's one of the reasons it'll be done on a phase basis, to make sure, starting with primary schools and leaving certain students, make sure we can do it. And it's not just the students in the class or the school, it's the movement around with it. What we don't want it is as a signal to the rest of the country, oh, well, everything's back to normal now. It isn't. We are prioritising students. We're prioritising their mental health, their education and their development. And by just managing this, I'm absolutely confident we can do that. We can get them back to school without the numbers spiking in the rest of society. But you do have an issue with the teachers' union over your plans for the Leaving Cert. They have to work this calculator grades and it, does it look like you're going to be able to get agreement for them? Because they have very serious misgivings for many reasons, which look like good reasons. I, I heard some of the union representatives today on the radio saying that they were willing to make this work uh, and that they have reservations, and, uh, and understandably. But I think they agreed that the, um, the management uh, boards, the, the parents, the students have all welcomed this, see this as the correct step, which I believe it is. Um, I think, I mean, for me, the key measure now is getting as many of our students to do the Leaving Cert as possible. I think the way it's been designed, it actually gives them a certain reassurance that they can do the Leaving Cert. They have the backstop of a, a pre-addicted pre grade. So they've everything to gain, in my way, in my mind, in, in terms of giving it their best shot uh, and still having a reassurance that they're not going to be, uh, you know, if, if they can't do it or for whatever reason, they still have that backstop. And I think... I think um, the teachers' unions, uh, the boards of management and others, I think will row in behind. And, and in some way, we'll show through that managing that adversity real strength. Okay, I want to move on to the mandatory quarantine. It's still going to take apparently a few weeks to get the legislation through. But when you do find the hotels to hold people, who's going to be responsible for making sure that people don't get out of the hotels? Is there a role for the army in this? There may be. That hasn't been decided yet. They certainly, I think, would be uh, very willing to help. They have been right through this crisis. Um, it is a public health measure. It's not, uh, you know, kind of uh, one of the concerns. Slightly, if it's just the army, uh, you uh, you might miss that. That actually, this has been done for good public health reasons. But at the same time, the army may well be able to help. Um, the arrival, someone arriving from the airport, will be a very standard procedure. They're met by border control. Guardi uh, will be uh, transferred to the hotel. Um, it will be full um, room aboard, has to be, for 14 days, or they can be released after 10 days if after that period they get a negative PCR test. Uh, this is not ideal. No one would want to be doing it. We've put a three-month sunset clause in because you don't want this legislation to become the norm. But at the same time, 
to protect particularly against import of variants, it is the right thing to but do. But is it going to include people coming in from the UK, given that about 90% of the cases at present can be traced back to the UK variant that was introduced in December? Are you going to apply this to people coming in from Britain? The UK variant is now makes up about 90% of our cases, so that, that won't be affected one way or the other. We're applying very similar to regulations to what the UK are doing. They've taken a very similar approach. I think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, but what about people coming from the UK to Ireland? Should we'll they be made to do the mandatory we'll be, quarantine? Well, yes, if their original origin was one of the 20 countries that the CMO has identified as ones that they're concerned about. This is decided on public health advice. If the CMO says that there's another country that should be included in the list, then we will do it. But they've set out the 20 at the present time. That doesn't include the UK. And on that basis, we, we, we basically follow public health advice in how we run this. How quickly do you think are you going to get to the 1 million people per month been vaccinated target? Well, to give people some sense of, of optimism, I suppose, or hope is, and it's difficult because that's very much dependent on the supply lines. That's starting to become more uh, clear. Last week or recent weeks, we were doing about 40, 45,000 cases or uh, vaccinations a week. This week, it's about 80,000. Next week, it'll be up to 110,000 and will scale up. There has been, uh, as everyone knows, a difficulty because the volume of AstraZeneca vaccines we thought we would get in the second quarter is significantly lower than was originally planned. Uh, there will be other vaccines coming on board, the Johnson & Johnson and, and other potential vaccines. As soon as we get them, they will be used. There has been no delay on the base of rolling out vaccines here. I think our GPs, the stories we're getting back from around the country, is actually an incredible sense of, of how our GP system is working really well, how, how actually those now patients over 85 or members of, the, uh, of those GP practices are, are really, it's, it's quite an emotional moment as they're starting to get vaccinated. Uh, that'll be the focus for the next three weeks, then the next age category below. Um, it will scale up, and the key, I suppose, to, towards accelerating it will be dependent on international supply to Ireland, not anything that we're doing here. We will go to the max here in terms of rolling out as soon as we get every single vaccine. OK, I want to move away from COVID for a little while on other issues which are very relevant. Today, you also announced your plan to get a smoky coal ban extended to the entire country. It seems there's already a bit of a backlash in Fianna Fáil from the likes of Barry Cowan about this. Why are you doing this? Because there are many people who say that the various fuels that you want to outlaw are the type of things that people depend on to avoid fuel poverty. Nothing's been outlawed. Uh, we're saying switch from smoky coal to smokeless coal, which is actually a better product, which actually gives better value for money, better heat. We're saying... Use the re we're saying to the business people, you've got to supply dry wood. There's no point burning, there's no fun, there's no heat baint when you're burning wet wood. We're not banning peat for those who've historically always used their own and, and had access to bog. Yes, that, that will keep going. But we're regulating the sale. And in this, we're doing it for a very one key reason. There are 1,300 people are dying prematurely every year because of air pollution. This is a very practical, a very achievable measure we can do to help save some of those lives. And it's not uh, overly restrictive. It's, it's recognising that we will still be burning coal, but just a certain type. We will still be burning wood, uh, just a certain high quality, not wet wood, which is in no one's interest. And yes, there will still be people burning peat. It's not an outright ban. But, but it does need to be regulated. And we do need... The best way to do that is by sale. 
just save lives. Okay, but if there's opposition in Fianna Fáil, is this one that the Greens have to be seen to win? Because there may be a perception that you've given way in lots of things and you have a lot of internal wrangling in the Greens about CETA, this trade deal between Canada and the European Union, which you might lose out on. This is to save public lives. I don't see that in any party, whatever your position, that there will be an argument against that. Let's see, first of all, what the public consultation says, because that's what we're starting now, and listening to the public as to what they think on these sort of measures. I think they'll be supportive. I, if someone comes back to me and says, oh, no, we don't want to be proving our air quality, well, yeah, of course we'll stand But stand what about that. the internal tensions in the Green Party, the need for some wins if you're, some of your members think you're giving too much away as the junior partner in coalition? And I think, actually, what a lot of people in our party are seeing, we're actually gaining and delivering huge amount of things every week. And, and, for, and it's not like for the Green Party, it's for the public. It's to actually improve people's quality of life, improve people's health, improve our environment. We're doing that every day, all seven of the ministers in our wider parliamentary party, in a way that I think actually both the public and our own members say, yeah, they're actually being green, they're standing up for being green, and for this country going green, which I think the Irish people want. OK, the Green Party is also not particularly in favour of aviation. You're in charge of that as Minister for Transport. What do you make of the reasoning behind giving loans of about 150 million euro as it stands to Aer Lingus with possibly more to come, given that this is no longer an Irish-owned company, let alone a state-owned one? Yeah, we need to do a complete transition to tackle climate change. But I don't think anyone has argued that we would stop people being able to fly in and out of the country or travel in any other means, all of which involve uh, use, use of fossil fuels. We need to change aviation in the long run towards cleaner fuels. But we do need connectivity. We as, a, we as an island are not going to cut ourselves off. And Aer Lingus is a company with a long record here, a really brilliant company. Of course you want to protect not just the, the jobs, but the, but the connectivity it brings. But is there not also an issue that they've been moving aircraft out of Dublin to Manchester? There's talk of them supplying the US route via Britain rather than Ireland. Are there guarantees in return for having given this money? That was a lending process that ISAF were engaged in. It's a commercial loan and the contractual arrangements weren't, weren't designed by uh, ourselves. It was, it was on the basis that the fund was set up correctly by the government to have just sort of these incidents where companies are in real trouble, where we don't... I mean, we're, we're giving support to so many different sectors. And included within that is aviation and tourism. And, and I think that's appropriate. OK. What about the 2,800 workers in Ulster Bank who expect tomorrow to hear that the parent bank is pulling Ulster Bank out of the Irish market? What can be done for the staff and for customers of Ulster Bank? Well, let's see, first of all, what, what, is, uh, what evolves tomorrow. I think the principles we should follow here is firstly looking after the customers and, and making sure that a regulatory system and, and whatever else happens, that they're, uh, as I'm absolutely convinced they will be, they're, they're looked after. But also, yes, that we do protect as many jobs as possible within the Irish banking industry and, and make sure that it continues to serve the Irish people. Uh, that will be Pascal Donoghue, who is obviously centrally involved in this. I'm fully supportive. I've been uh, discussing it with him at length. And I'd be fully supportive of the approach he'll be taking. Thank you very much, Minister Eamon Ryan, for joining us. We're joined now via Skype by consumer journalist Sinead Ryan. Sinead, there is indeed mounting concern for the customers, 2,800 staff at Ulster Bank and mortgage holders over a potential exit of Ulster Bank from the Irish market. And the Irish Independent is reporting this evening that AIB is on the verge of buying all the business loans that Ulster Bank holds and that permanent TSB is examining a deal to buy the mortgages. Would that suggest that this is a done deal, effectively, that the 2,800 people working in Ulster Bank and the 88 branches may be to close? 
Yeah, no, it's a very, very worrying time. And it hasn't been helped by Ulster Bank, you know, not issuing any information at all um, ahead of tomorrow. So if there are deals being done behind the scenes, behind the scenes on the business book, which is very, very um, uh, valuable and profitable, I think it's probably a good thing. Certainly if there are banks like AIB, permanent TSB banks, we know, we understand the practices, they're, they're covered under the code of conduct. And now they may run into some competition issues because the business here is so limited, the market is so limited that, that they might have, might have a hurdle to cross there first. But as far as SMEs are concerned, they'll be wanting to know that their credit lines are intact. They're not going to have to renegotiate them, especially those that have been affected by COVID. Uh, and of course, that's true for all customers, mortgage ones included. Well, indeed, mortgages. And is this something that people just have to accept that they do a deal with a bank in relation to their mortgage and expect to be with that bank for as long as they want, but that the bank can actually sell their loan onto somebody else? Yes, they can. And Ulster Bank has a loan book of 20 billion euros. So it's absolutely massive. They're the third biggest bank um, and it's going to affect uh, an awful lot of customers. Now, generally, when you take out a mortgage, the expectation is that you're just going to pay it back in, you know, to the bank that you borrowed it from. But of course, that's just not the case. And we found uh, previously when banks have exited Ireland, um, Dansk have left, Rabo left, of course, Anglo, Irish Nationwide, uh, for other reasons. Uh, that those loans simply get sold on. Now, people really shouldn't be concerned uh, if they're paying back the mortgage and they're doing the right thing. They, they are all co uh, covered under consumer codes of conduct. So there should be any change except somebody else will own their loan. Uh, the worry would be people who are in arrears, who are in forbearance measures of any kind because um, they may not get the same terms and conditions maybe that they would have enjoyed with Ulster Bank. Of course, AIB and permanent TSB, who it looks like may be picking up big chunks of Ulster Bank, are state-owned banks. Would that mean that as they're state-owned that there might be better rates of interest available to borrowers from those banks? Well, I wouldn't be too sure about that. I mean, the banks were already paying uh, far more than our European counterparts for mortgage rates uh, as it is. Now, there's plenty of reasons for that, not least because our um, mark process, the repossession process is so laborious and expensive and slow. Uh, but Matt, once you reduce competition, that is not going to be good for interest rates because now you have fewer banks offering uh, mortgages. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the rates you know, didn't go down at all as a result of that. I mean, why would they? What's the incentive? And then uh, and on the other side, when it comes to your deposits, is this pushing us even closer to not getting any interest on any money that people leave in the bank, but instead having to pay the bank to hold on to it for them? Yeah, negative interest rates could absolutely be a thing coming to a bank near you. Nobody wants the Ulster Bank uh, deposit book. It's uh, 20 billion, another 20 billion, uh, and deposits are liabilities and banks do not want them. So if they have to take them on board or are forced to take them on board by the government as some part of a deal that they do on the, on the profitable side of the book, uh, then I wouldn't be surprised in the future if we start seeing at the moment rates are zero, they can't go any lower than that. Yeah, they sure can, they can go to negative territory. It hasn't happened yet with ordinary depositors' accounts. But AIB, for instance, are already doing it on their bigger business accounts, uh, as okay. are Bank of Ireland. So it will happen. Thank you very much, Sinead, for joining us. After the break, with 130 countries yet to receive 
a single dose of vaccine, are we fighting a losing battle? We'll be hearing from an Irish expert in Ethiopia. And later, has the online abuse of public figures spiralled out of control? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Well, we're joined now from Ethiopia by Ruri Brua, Professor Emeritus in Public Health and Epidemiology with the Royal College of Surgeons. Rory, you're certainly a long way from home. So can you tell us about how the pandemic is affecting Ethiopia? Well, Ethiopia was having its first wave when we arrived in August. It was around July, August, September. And there are countries like this in Africa who have actually just gone through one wave. If you take Southern Africa, there have been two waves in a number of countries. And uh, a parallel with Ireland in that South Africa's second wave was much worse than its first wave. Um, but going back to Ethiopia, uh, the cases have been rumbling along. Some suggestion over the last uh, month that we could be seeing a second wave. We're actually seeing a very similar number of cases to Ireland, around 800 uh, a day. And this is a population 20 times the size of Ireland. So this would suggest that, well, maybe uh, COVID-19 isn't a big problem in Africa. Which, and that would be very wrong. But there are reasons why much of sub-Saharan Africa has seen a lower number of cases. It suggested that it's much younger population, which are not as heavily affected, that there are circulating antibodies already. But governments also responded very rapidly in, in quarantines, closing borders back around April and May. But the worry now is around vaccine access, because if the world thinks that, well, COVID-19 isn't a big problem in Africa. Africa is going to get left behind. And it's already looking like um, much of Africa won't be seeing vaccines until 2022. Well, Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization has been talking about this week. And even this evening, President Emmanuel Macron has suggested that Europe should be giving surplus supplies to Africa. But he says that apparently in Africa, the pharmaceutical companies are charging two to three times what they're charging in the EU. How could that be? Yes, access is the biggest problem, but cost. There was a, the UNAIDS executive director talked to the Oireachtas Committee last week, and he, he pointed out that the EU had negotiated $2 a dose for the AstraZeneca vaccine. South Africa was being charged $5, and Uganda $7. 
So it looks as if uh, those who can afford least are being charged the most. But the problem is, is only partly around cost, and cost reflects a monopoly, it reflects a shortage. And, and access to vaccines is really where Ireland should be looking. Now, once we, and it looks like we're going to get a big rollout of vaccines in Ireland over the next two to three months. But as a nation now, we should be looking at why is it that the countries, the poorest countries could be left behind by 12 months or 18 months. There's actually a vaccine scarcity, okay. aggravated by the EU uh, and North America you know, just hogging more vaccines than they need. And a final thing, Rory, given that the schools are such a topic of conversation here in Ireland, how has that been managed in Ethiopia? We're not in the middle of a winter. Um, we can uh, spread out teaching, spread out uh, the delivery of lessons. And I know a lot of schools now run three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, fr Friday for half the pupils, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday uh, for the other half. But I would say to Ireland, and this is what, what happened, what the mistakes we made in 2020 was we didn't prioritise what's important to us. And the mistakes weren't just in December, pubs and restaurants and, and, and what happened in people's homes. It goes right back to June, decisions to open the pubs prematurely. Put the schools first. Get our priorities right in 2021. Professor Rory Brewer, thank you very much for joining us from Addis Ababa tonight and look after yourself. Well, we're joined now in studio by Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and by Dr Nina Burns, GP and founder of Generation Health medical clinics. Nina, if I could start with you, the issue of the schools. As a parent and as a GP, what do you make of this decision to go for a phased reopening of schools from the 1st of March? So from a healthcare point of view, I, I do understand it. You know, I, they don't want a million people suddenly moving in one day. Um, and so they want to bring people back, reevaluate it every few weeks and reassess the numbers. Hopefully, as we bring children back, the numbers will continue to go down. We can all be reassured that schools are not a big source of transmission, which is what we believe, obviously, um, and that then we can continue to, to bring more students back. As a parent, you know, I have three children, one in fifth year, fourth year, and first class. Now, on the rumours of what it's going, two of those will probably go back um, early. But, of course, I would love to see them all back. And, you know, we... We are seeing in general practice the fallout from, you know, children being at home, even just today talking to a junior school kid, saying how much he misses school and misses his friends. Um, so obviously as a parent, I want everyone back as quick as possible, but the doctor in me does understand the way they're doing it. Now, I did raise earlier though with uh, Eamon Ryan about uh, the issue of the teachers and whether it would be safe for them. But there was an interesting point raised by Leaving Cert student Amy McLaughlin on this programme last night about the concern that these young adults, as many Leaving Cert students are, are amongst the most highly infected groups at present and that they could be bringing the illness back to home to vulnerable people or vulnerable grandparents. Should that also be a factor? So, of course, you know, I suppose that it's, it's so hard to get this right, Matt. And, and there is, you know, I, I totally understand the concerns of teachers. I understand people saying I'm worried about going to work or to school and, and to be infected or to bring the infection home. And, you know, every healthcare worker in this country knows what it feels like to go to work worried that you're going to bring coronavirus home. And um, we're lucky we, we've been vaccinated. We were in the first group, which is fantastic. But there are other frontline workers out there. Retail staff are not vaccinated and they're still going to work. So... I completely empathise with that concern, but I, I do think it is really important that, you know, we are going to have, have to start opening up at some stage. I think it's totally appropriate that the opening up is schools. 
I really do. Lisa Chairman, what do you make of the European Centre for Disease Control saying that schools can open even if the infection rates are high? Yeah, I, mean, I think the priority for, for the government is to get schools reopened. Um, the World Health Organization, Dr Ryan, has repeatedly said that it has to be a priority for countries to get schools back open. And that's because they can see the damage that's been done to children being off school, to their well-being, to their mental health and, and to their, their future progression and, and, and certainly to reach those milestones and you know, all of the things the school bring with it, not just education, but even socialising with friends. So it's trying to strike that balance for public health versus uh, looking after the welfare of children. And that's why I, I think the priority has to be to get kids back to school. And I think that's what parents want. Uh, and parents don't want their children going to an unsafe location. But we have been reassured time and time again that schools are not a significant source of infection, that they are safe places. And I think parents are, are showing us that they're, they're happy for their kids to go back to school. Let's move on to the issue of the vaccination rollout, Nina. And uh, how do you feel it's going? And is there enough information perhaps for people as to how soon they're going to be getting their shot? So look, I, I think, you know, th there was all the, the talk about how we're going to start vaccinating the over 70s, which we are. I, I think there were a lot of people in their 70s then were probably disappointed a week later to realise that they probably wouldn't get their first shot until April. Um, and in fact, had a conversation with a couple of patients today in their 70s and they wanted to know very specifically what date, which I couldn't tell them because we don't actually have a specific date for our first tranche of over 85s yet. But I'm assuming we're going to be that first week in March. That'll be our over 85s. Two weeks later, we'll be our over 80s two weeks later will be our over 75s and so those 70 to 75 are going to be waiting a good six weeks at least before they get their first shot um, so I think it was important that that message was you know out there it wasn't out there initially I think GPs have done a lot of work kind of trying to get that message we've been ringing our over 70s reassuring them but look, this is all down to supply and, you know, we, we need to get the supply up. We need to get more vaccines out. My hope is as the supply increases that, you know, we can maybe get more vaccines each week and, and maybe, you know, in, in a smaller practice like mine, we could possibly do our 75s and 70s together if the vaccines are available. But right now they're very strictly saying drop it by five years every two weeks. Um, my other hope would be that given that we have picked specific vaccines for specific groups is that they now come back out with their list of other people who can be vaccinated and that we can use some of the AstraZeneca vaccines that we haven't used yet and some of the other vaccines, hopefully the Janssen vaccine will come on and we can start maybe vaccinating other cohorts who are going to get these other vaccines as quickly as possible and, and possibly even slightly alongside them. Lisa, if we're not using the AstraZeneca for the over 70s, do we actually have supplies of it at present which are in a warehouse somewhere? My understanding is no, and uh, that when they come, they will be administered. And I think we've shown, I think Ireland's track record um, has been very good. We've been consistently in the top three of the European Union countries in terms of once we get the vaccine, we get it out quick. And I think you know, a lot of um, healthcare professionals have made the point that it's really important to get the logistics right, to get this done properly, that we don't have vaccines landing to a location because some of them are quite unstable and that they're, they, they can't be used because they haven't been managed properly. So I think we've managed it well. Supply is the problem. We don't have enough to meet what demand. About the workers who seem to be concerned that the AstraZeneca efficacy may not be as good as it should be? Uh, look, I'm not an expert in vaccines. I can only go on the advice that we're given, the public health advice, and the, the minister is doing the same. Um, the European Medicines Agency has approved AstraZeneca uh, and has said it's, it's okay for that age cohort. Um, 
I think all we can do is rely on the advice that we have and the, and the experts that are advising us. Nina, of course, you have a situation now as well that you're one of, not every medical practice actually has a sufficiently large number of the over 70s to be put in a position to be distributing or administering the vaccine at your clinics. What do you think the impact is going to be of these mass vaccination centres throughout the country? The first one, I think, opening up at Dublin City University very soon. Well, no, I think they're great ideas. So specifically for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, it, it really is down to the logistics of delivery. There's a minimum amount of doses can be distributed at any one time. For Moderna, that's 100 doses. Um, for Pfizer, I think it's 36. So clearly a practice, I heard of one practice that has one person over the age of 85. Logistically, you wouldn't deliver one vial because five doses would get wasted. So they are really important, those clinics. Um, but obviously, you know, I think when it comes to mass vaccinating, when we start going out to other groups, what we're going to have to do is use our GPs, our pharmacies, these mass clinics, and just get it done. Um, and, I, and I think that's really, really important. And just on your point about the AstraZeneca, you know, I think healthcare workers are happy to get a vaccine. Look, the fact that we have vaccines that are 94% effective, most vaccines are not near that. And of course, everyone wants something that's the most effective. But ultimately, you know, we all know that the AstraZeneca vaccine is very effective against severe disease, which is really most important. And certainly all my admin team got the AstraZeneca vaccine at the weekend, and they were saying they cried tears of joy. They were delighted to get it. Any side effects for anyone that you know has got it? Yes, yeah, so lots of people have side effects. And I think it's important to talk about them because, first of all, any vaccine can cause side effects. If anyone's had travel vaccines, they know you often have a sore arm. You often feel a little bit fluey a day after. So the coronavirus vaccines are no different to that. Certainly, you hear reports of people who've had high temperatures a day or two after, like a flu-like illness where they're aching. But I think the really important thing to say is they're not dangerous, those side effects. They are showing that your immune system is responding to the vaccine that's given. And that's what we want. I haven't have had anyone, have and I haven't had anyone have symptoms go on more than 48 hours. So, you know, when they say they're short-lived, I really mean they're short-lived. What about these vaccination centres? A bit of controversy about locations throughout the country, even your own native county of Mayo, and it takes a long time to drive from certain parts of Mayo to another part of Mayo. Is one centre in Mayo enough to actually be uh, sufficiently available to people? Yeah, I mean, the centre that's been allocated for Mayo is in Brafie House Resort in Castlebar. The feedback I've gotten uh, is people are delighted to have one in the county. Um, I think you could be travelling from parts of Mayo up to an hour and a half to get there. Um, but quite frankly, people want the vaccine. They will make that trip. And I think the most important thing is that they get the vaccine and that it's administered in a proper setting, in a safe location. And, and that has to be the priority. I just think it's not practical or feasible to have vaccination centres within a half an hour of everybody in the country. And certainly the feedback I've gotten is that people are very happy to have one you know, within reach and, and just want to get there. And will there be help given in relation to things like public transport? Because not everybody has a car to be able to get themselves to these places or not necessarily have access to other people who will do it for them, to bring them. Yeah, I mean, I think there, if there are challenges in that front, we, we'll have to look at it. I mean, again, the over 70s will be done through their GPs uh, and that's going to start, that, that's underway. Um, so, so far, I haven't had many issues around that raised with me. Uh, I think most people will find a way to get there. It's no different than getting to a hospital appointment or a doctor's appointment. Uh, and in Mayo, we're quite used to travelling the distances. Nina, just to finish with you, are you much more positive now at this stage than you might have been a few weeks ago when the case numbers are still very high now, but they were much higher? 
Yeah, we're definitely feeling more optimistic. I mean, we're not getting as many calls per day of, of symptomatic patients. We're definitely not seeing positives coming in the way they were. Patients are starting to come back. We were quite quiet in January. We're starting to get busier, which means people are coming back for normal health care. So they're all very positive things. But I think, you know, I was watching the press conference this evening and I, I think Ronan Glynn spoke really well when he said, you know, we definitely can't be complacent where we're not where we need to be and we have to keep going. But we will get there. That's good to hear. Thank you very much to Dr. Nina Burns for joining us. Lisa Chambers will be staying with us. And after the break, this week, Irish footballer James McLean's horrific online abuse has raised serious concerns around the trolling and online threats endured by those in the public eye. Is it time to clamp down? ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome back. Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers is still with us and we're also joined by Ireland AM reporter Brianna Parkins and via Skype by sports journalist with the Irish Times, Joanna Reardon. Joanna, of course, this week the Irish footballer Stoke City player James McLean shared the latest horrific online abuse he and his family have endured. But this is nothing new, of course, when it comes to the backlash public figures can face online. But why does it keep happening to McLean and why does nobody do anything about it? Yeah, I suppose for the likes of James McLean, I think the problem is that we just kind of see him as this white guy from Northern Ireland who's just over in England who caused a bit of a controversy because he decided to stand up and not wear the poppy. So I think a lot of people would kind of describe James McLean as just a lightning rod for his own kind of controversy. But I think when you start seeing the messages of him being called, you know, a Fenian, uh, I can't really say the word, but, you know, and people like telling him that his children have to be tied to chairs and burnt in front of him just because he doesn't like to wear the poppy, like it's absolutely absolutely insane and I think just the level of intolerance has just grown and I think you can kind of tell when the world is in kind of a bit of a situation you know we had anger with Donald Trump we have anger with coronavirus people just tend to go online anonymously and decide it's okay to send these people abuse and it's just not okay and I think we have to do something about it sooner rather than later you know I mean the courts can't really do anything about it the social media companies can't really do anything about it. Um, and I think really we can't really be relying on this vicious cycle of someone tweets the abuse they get. We all get outraged. We all decide to take a knee, make a cute banner, talk about the football family, go back to our lives. And then the cycle happens again. You know, we have to break it at some stage. 
Chris, you, know, you just know I'm recalling this from a couple of weeks ago that there was a court case in Kerry for the online abuse that Ian Wright, the former England footballer, has suffered from a teenager down in Kerry who got the Probation Act rather than actually a conviction. And Ian Wright was very, very upset about that. But it does raise the point that why has nobody been charged in relation to the many, many times James McLean has been abused? Yeah, exactly. And even for the likes of Ian Wright, like I'm sure he doesn't want someone to go to prison and have their lives ruined. I think what he wants is someone, and unfortunately someone may have to be made an example of in terms of showing people you cannot be, you know, rewarded for this kind of behavior. We've seen it too often, you know, with the likes of, you know, Donald and Boris and all these people who have said ridiculous things like in the past. And now they're, you know, they were leading countries or still are leading countries, you know, and for the likes of James McLean, I think it just goes back to the fact where, you know, we all can kind of see like racism. We all can kind of see Islamophobia and different things like that. But weirdly, when it's happening to our own and when it's happening to someone who we all share beliefs in, I think we all are just a little bit petrified because we're like, well, maybe I don't want to be seen as someone who supports, you know, certain political parties or maybe I don't want to be seen to be as anti-British as what I want to be. But at the end of the day, this is just pure human decency. This okay. is being able to turn on and say, you know, stop doing that. Brianna, of course, this isn't just something that sports stars have to endure. Women in particular, celebrities, this is a year on from Caroline Flack's suicide. And also we've seen the much heralded documentary now about the way Britney Spears has been treated. And there could be countless other examples, couldn't there? Oh God, it's pervasive across Irish society. You know, looking at women in politics, I think they happen to cop it the worst. And we were just talking about that in the break. Um, and then of course you have female journalists, you have female sportswomen. Across the board, women cop abuse. And men do too. But there seems to be an ugliness that when it comes to online abuse to women. I know I took part in the repeal campaign all those years ago and I still get really quite graphic rape threats and I don't know if a male colleague of mine has never ever said that he's had threats against his... And do you ever report those to anyone? I have tried. I've reported them both to Ireland and Australian authorities and basically told them that they could do because they happen to be American. Um, they think they are American sort of pro-life groups targeting us. Uh, for instance, my niece uh, got very upset with me the other day because I wasn't acknowledging her on my public TikTok forum and it was because they found photos of my family and, and published them of my nieces and nephews when they were quite young um, and I just said to her, look, I'd have the discussion of like, there are some bad people out there and they might target you if I acknowledge you publicly, so I'm really sorry. That's the kind of conversations women have to have with their children. But what about the lives. responsibility of the platforms, be it TikTok, Instagram, yeah. Facebook, Twitter, whatever, to actually stop, to take some responsibility for what they allow to be published. But this is an interesting one. So Australia has brought in anti-trolling legislation. It was just brought in in December. So I haven't seen how it works in the courtroom yet. But um, different to the Coco's Law approach in Ireland, they're actually hitting the tech companies and saying to the tech companies, you have 24 hours. We're going to give you a takedown notice. You have 24 hours to take it down. Otherwise, we're going to hit you with half a million dollars in fines if you don't and possibly block you later on. The e, the e safety uh, Commissioner will also have the power just to rip down a website at short notice. That was in response to the Christchurch attack. So that terrorist attack was live streamed on Facebook. So in response to that, they decided to step in, have these broad ranging powers, and it has gotten the tech giants' noses severely out of joint. But it seems to be working. Do we need to be doing things like that here, Lisa? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've been having conversations with colleagues and 
certainly since the last election, the level of abuse, I, I've seen a, an increase. I, I've contested three general elections and I can attest to the increase and the increase in the level of violence and, and how awful it is. It's definitely gotten worse. And it's Threats of violence like Brianna has? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was talking to my colleague Niall Collins before I came on air and I think he said this publicly and he's, he's quite happy for me to say it tonight that he's been, you know, say the mother and baby home issue. Um, he was said, uh, somebody said, I hope you die of COVID, you better watch your back. And that's just that one issue. But this is, it, it's really prevalent in public life. It's definitely, and, and I think I'm okay in saying this, it's definitely more vicious toward women. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and how do you deal with it? Um, there, there's, there's a feeling, I think, that there's very little sympathy for public representatives anyways, and that you're supposed to have a thick skin and just get on with it. And, you know, we, we talk to each other about it. It is upsetting. You know, you're not a stone. It does impact. Words have an impact. And I think people behave online completely differently to how they would behave in public. Um, just very recently, I had an exchange on Twitter with, with an elected public representative, a councillor, that put out something that I, I felt was quite nasty and directed at another female politician, completely unfounded for no reason. And, and I called him out on it. And, you know, I don't know if he would have said those things to her face. Um, but I think it's just people have a different persona online. And that's somebody that's you know, has a name and attaches it to their account. But you've got all these anonymous accounts and it can be quite targeted. I mean, if they want to take you out, they will. And, you know, that, what's the saying? A lie is already... There are punishments it. occasionally, though. We just saw even this week the intended appointment of a new chairman to the Shannon Authority was stopped because of the discovery of some fairly inflammatory tweets he'd put out, particularly in relation to travellers. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's a good example of somebody that there, where there were consequences. But I think the effect on political life is quite chilling. It's silencing people. It's, it's stopping people from actually getting involved in debate because they don't want the hassle of it. I've had colleagues say to me, I just don't want to get involved. I don't even want to like a tweet or get involved in a debate because I'm going to bring it on myself. And I think it's putting people off staying in public life and going into public life. Joanne, what about the mental health impacts of this online bullying? Yeah, like it's huge. And, you know, it's really like interesting listening to Brianna and Fiona and like talking about it. Like, you know, in football alone, um, we've had no fans since March, but yet the incidence of arrest for hate, hate chance have gone up by 150%. You're talking about mental health. It's huge. You know, I mean, I'm like the girls. I've gotten a couple of fair stuff myself. You know, it was all nice and night when I was doing kind of no limbs, no limits activities, but I dip my toe into the world of sports and all of a sudden I'm told I'm not good enough. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, some of the stuff is I don't care. You know, I had one fella basically telling me he was going to take off my limbs. I was like, you already are too late, pal. Um, but, you know, I'm thick skinned. I'm quite, I'm quite able for it. But for someone who isn't and for someone who has been worn down by it, it's absolutely huge. Like, I mean, we saw, you know, it happened to Caroline Flack last year. It's literally a year anniversary since her, you know, situation and her suicide. And people are still going online, abusing people. And as I said, like nothing is being done. And it's because it's all anonymous. And, you know, people are just hiding behind their screens. But I think, you know, the, the girls are right. People feel that public representatives, they just, they have to be able to take it. If you buy a ticket to a football match, you should be able to abuse your player for not scoring. And like, that's not, that's not exactly where the crack is. And I think, to be honest, it is getting to a stage where everything is kind of slowly turning into a toxic wasteland. There's another issue, Brianna, I want to ask you about Facebook and this in your own native Australia, where they're standing up for the rights of the media about having their work pirated and stolen and exploited by Facebook. But how is that now working out? It's a complete dust up between the tech giants, but also 
the media giants. So people are pitching this as a Goliath and David battle. It's actually Goliath and Goliath because the main lobby uh, group behind this legislation is News Corp. And they're one of the biggest companies in the world in terms of news reach. I think 65%, they own 65% of newspaper readership in Australia. They're massive. So basically what's happened in Australia is there is an argument between the tech giants and the news publishers saying who actually benefits who more. So Facebook is saying, you know what, we actually gave you four bit, I think it was 40 billion in terms of revenue. We gave all these clicks to you last year. Um, you would be nothing without us. You need us to have the click through. Um, and our news content only, I think, is 4% of our news feeds. We're not even making money from it. So like, whatever, fine. And then the publishers are saying, well, actually, hang on a second, because when we provide these articles to you, the consumer doesn't click through to our website. It's hosted by Facebook and you're collecting the ad revenue. So you actually need us. Okay, but in the one minute we have left, how has that now meant that a lot of people in Australia are no longer getting access, not just to news, but public information about COVID? Yeah, so uh, Facebook spat the dummy. Now, they said they were going to do this back in August, so it wasn't totally an overnight sensation. Um, but they've really thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They took down not just news and publishers, but uh, New South Wales Health. So imagine the HSC just disappearing overnight. And that's a huge problem in Australia because of our tracing system. So they put up, if you've been in this location between this hour and this hour, or this bus between this stop and this stop, go and get tested. So it's not an ideal time in the pandemic, and it hasn't won them a PR campaign at all. Okay, Lisa, do you think would our government ever take on Facebook, given the eight or to 10,000 people it employs now in Ireland? Yeah, I, mean, I think there, there are moves to do that here. And obviously their headquarters, their even headquarters is in, is in Dublin. And a lot of the tech companies are based in Dublin. So, you know, we're a very small country and a small member state, but there's, I think there is an onus on us to lead on this. Uh, and there's a lot of work to be done here. And yeah, I think Ireland has to lead the way. Okay, our thanks there to Joanne, to Brianna and Lisa for joining us. I'll be back on the radio on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. Kira will be back here on Monday at 10 o'clock. And don't forget to check out the Tonight Show podcast wherever you subscribe. So thanks for watching, stay safe, stay home, and a very good weekend to you. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.